as they're uh, as they're leaving, I just want to say a couple things to lead us in a in a time of brief confessional prayer. Um, you guys, you can walk off. I don't want to keep you playing. Um, first of all, thank you very uh, very much. Appreciate. And let's just thank them for leading us in worship this morning. And and they've agreed. We have a, a Panamanian service afterward. If you'd like to stay for the rambunctious worship. Um, so we got to share, thank you, John, for sharing too. We got to share um, in seeing what is God doing in the world as we were talking about being ambassadors among the nations. But as we move to a time of confession, uh, uh, confessing uh, to the Lord, um, we also want to ask the question as we're going to hear God's word. Um, it's not just what is God doing in the world, like in Panama, but what in the world is God doing? As I love that Kyle said it. Some of you came from great weeks, and some of you, it's been a shipwreck of a week. And so to lead us uh, in a time, I just want that thought. What is it, what's the thing throbbing in you right now? Because like David, the theologian in Panama said, there are no accidents. It's not an accident you're in here this morning, the people you're sitting next to. And God knows exactly this mini season or the stretch of weeks that you're in. And so I just want you to think, what is that right now that you've come in with? It's pressing on you. It's nagging at you. What is that? Because confession means to say the same thing. We just confess. I believe in God the Father. We confess who he is. It means to say the same thing. But we also confess our sin, which we've celebrated his forgiveness here. And we confess our need for him. That's why I'm leading us into that. So if you'd bow your heads, what is that? Let's confess let it not be a history lesson, we believe that he did these things, but that he is the one who says, cast your cares on me because I care for you. Cast your cares on him because he sustains you. Take a moment to be quiet before the Lord and confess your need. Can give that thing to him. Ask him to meet you in that moment. Our Father, we quiet, we compose and quiet ourselves before you. That includes whatever is throbbing in our minds that confuses, disappoints, um, unravels us, Lord. So we thank you that you care and you want us to unload those to you. We, we confess that you are our Heavenly Father, not by our merit, but because of what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We belong to you because of Jesus you tell us we can approach your throne of grace in our time of mercy, uh, a need for your mercy and grace. So meet each of us now in that. And then, Lord, as we turn our ears to hear your word, help us cause our attention to be kept as we listen because you have whatever it is that you put on Bob's heart and through, through Luke to his original audience, Lord, that's not just a history lesson. It's for this moment. When we say, what are you doing in the world? And then what in the world are you doing? Meet us in this moment because, Lord, as John said, different cultures, same kingdom, same king. So cause us to attend to you. As Bob comes, Lord, fill him with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit so that we might be hearers and also therefore doers of your word, so that you'd be glorified 
you'd be worshiped as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I neglected to do this. Bob, come on up. I neglected to do this two weeks ago. Um, he doesn't want an introduction necessarily, but this is Bob Deffenbaugh. And he, uh, I mentioned that he has um, been a pastor for a long time. I'm going to say almost five decades at Community Bible Chapel down the road in Richardson. Uh, he also, you can read a lot of his work online in Bible.org. I'd say it's one of the top five resources for me to go any book of the Bible, and most of it is, well, a lot of it's Bob on there and and some other well-known folks that you would, would know. He also is a part of biblical eldership, um, which is a great ministry to to coach, to, to write toward issues of what does it look like to be a, a shepherd, an under-shepherd in the local church. And so I've also benefited from that. Our elders have benefited from that work as well. He and his wife, Jeanette, have five daughters, including one you might know named Jenny Felker, and so it was also by design that we had his son-in-law, Kyle, lead us in the Lord's Supper just because I like to mess with people. Sure so I'm going to be quiet. Bob, you Thanks. on? Thanks. You're on? All I'm right, go. To be. All right, do I sound live back there? Ah, great. You know, I, I couldn't help but think uh, as, as I was uh, watching the presentation uh, of being in a foreign place, I've been a, a number, and, and uh, I was traveling with a blind friend of mine, uh, Craig, and, and we were in Malawi, and, and, uh, in the middle of Africa. And, 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 and uh, one of the things that I've noted in churches where I've preached is they always get the offering plate to the preacher. Not, not, not full for you to empty, but empty for you to fill. And, and, and so Craig is sitting there on the platform, and he's up to preach, and, and the offering is passed. Well, obviously, he doesn't see it coming, but they poke him with the offering plate, and, and, and he realizes now what's going on. And Craig's a guy who really knows how to handle himself. I mean, all his clothes in his suitcase are matching, so he can never have the wrong socks or whatever, and he even knows where his money is in his wallet. But he had foreign currency just stuffed in his pocket, and so he just, they caught him off guard, he just reaches in, grabs a wad of it, sticks it in. Craig said to me, it's the biggest offering they ever took. <laughs> oh, there are lots of fun things going overseas. You know, I have a friend now with the Lord, and uh, Fred used to threaten to write a, a book entitled Crooked Thinking About the Straight and Narrow. And, and the reality is there's a lot of crooked thinking uh, about the gospel, about the Christian life, even sadly about salvation. And, and one of the things that I note in this text is the, the different uh, context in which we find this. If you go to the Gospel of John, you know that from chapters 13 through chapter 17, Jesus is really focusing on his disciples because he knows the time of his, his uh, crucifixion is drawing near, and so it's this inner circle attitude. That's not at all what you see in Luke 13. You see Jesus traveling around, and somebody from the crowd says this or that, and Jesus interacts with it. And in all of this, there, there is crooked thinking that's going on, and Jesus is correcting that thinking 
so that the gospel is really clear. And the way I see this chapter unfolding, there are really three major sections. The first is what you might call crooked thinking about sin. It's really the first half of the chapter. Uh, there's a lot of crooked thinking about sin. And then the, the next verses are crooked thinking about the gospel, about salvation, about the kingdom it's going to be. And the last is crooked thinking about Jesus. Uh, and, and I want to show you, if I can, the connection that takes place between uh, those three sections. So let me just start with, uh, with Luke chapter 13 and go through uh, verses 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Sometime I want to take a, a more time to talk to you about triangulation, but triangulation, I think, is a vitally important thing because one passage of Scripture doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the subject. I just go to Proverbs, for example. If you were to look for the answer to why are people poor, I can almost read your minds. Number one's going to be lazy. Well, that's true. The sluggard is poor. But it also says the soil of the poor is really rich, but it's swept away by injustice. Not everybody's poor because they're lazy. So you have to take into, into account other things. Satan quotes Scripture to our Lord, and he says, you know, the Scripture says that, you, that God will protect you if you just jump off this thing. And Jesus said, well, wait a minute. There are other Scriptures that bear on this subject, too. Don't put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. Triangulation. So you need to triangulate on this text in this way. Is sin and suffering connected? Yes, at times it is. James chapter 5, when the elders of the church are called to pray over someone that's sick, when we do that, we feel obliged as elders to say, we don't know that there's sin in your life. But if there is sin in your life, then we need to address that because that will be key to this whole thing. And I've actually seen instances where, where somebody said there is and where God brings healing because the sin is confessed. But not all suffering is due to one's sin, and that's where the problem comes along. John chapter 9. Here are the disciples. Here's a man born blind. What are the disciples thinking instinctively? Who sinned? This man or his parents. If they're suffering, there must be sin. Somebody did something wrong. Suffering and sin are now equated with each other. And so in this text, there's this false linking. And they're saying, here's this terrible event that took place. Somebody must have done something very wrong. By the way, have you ever done that? California. You know, whether it's floods or whatever, and you say to yourself, Hollywood. You know, and you're immediately thinking, 
This could be, you know, it, it maybe we even worse say, this is the judgment of God. Uh, AIDS, uh, COVID, uh, the, the, the earthquake in, in, in Turkey. And we can become guilty of saying to ourselves, it's sin. And the problem is, and Jesus has already addressed this in Luke chapter 6. He says, be very careful that you don't try to correct the sin in somebody else's life you know, the little thing in somebody else's eye when you've got a big log in yours. And so here's one group of sinners calling other people greater sinners. The Lord says, you can't do that. It's a false connection. And he says, do you think somehow all of the other Galileans were more pious than these people, that they were the worst sinners? Do you think when the Tower of Siloam fell, that those were the worst sinners and all the other people in Jerusalem weren't so good? Wrong thinking. Wrong thinking. And he says, unless you repent, let's not talk about their sin, Jesus is saying. Let's talk about your sin. And the fact that other people have great sin does nothing to diminish or solve my problem with sin. And oftentimes, when we look at the sin of other people and think it's greater, it's actually not as bad as ours. Self-righteous sin is one of the number one uh, things our Lord Jesus goes after. So I think that what this paragraph, how this paragraph could be summarized is, God doesn't grade on the curve. See, if I focus on other people's sins, they're thinking... And if I look at them and point out how bad they are, then I must not be quite as bad. I get a better grade than they do. Well, you remember the scripture says in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one. Later in that chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Jesus is saying about sin is, hey, folks, don't focus on the sins of other people thinking that solves your problem unless you repent. You're going to face eternal judgment. That's, that's uh, addressing something I think we need to know about sin. Here's the second thing that he does. He tells a parable in verse 6 and uh, through verse 9. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. I find it interesting that he talks about three years. Don't you? Three years. Why three? Well, how long has Jesus been around? About three years. And somehow there hasn't been any real fruit. By the way, the key text for this is Isaiah chapter 5 first seven verses. Isaiah chapter 5 says God planted a vineyard, 
and he expects that vineyard to produce fruit. The vineyard is Israel, and the vine is Judah. And he said, they haven't produced the fruit. It's now time for judgment. I think it's very clear in my mind Jesus is referring to that here. And that teaches us another thing about sin. Sin is not just those things we do by commission. Sin includes those things we don't do by omission. You notice what the evil is here? The evil is no fruit. It doesn't talk about some terrible thing, lying, robbery, whatever it is. No fruit. Jesus comes to his own people, and he looks for fruit, <laughs> and there isn't any. John chapter 15, Jesus talks about the, the tree that has no fruit. So sin is not only the performance of things that are wrong, it's the failure to do those things which God requires. Oh, I love this story. This is one of my favorite stories, and it's, it goes from the theoretical to the practical. What does sin look like in everyday terms? Well, here it is. Verse 10. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over, and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. <laughs> but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. There's a religious bureaucrat, right? You didn't come during office hours. How dare you get healed on the Sabbath? Jesus says, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, that's a very interesting expression. In Luke, Daughter of Abraham is used here. Son of Abraham is used of Nicodemus, of Zacchaeus uh, later on in Luke. But what it's saying is, you think that being a descendant of Abraham gives you a privileged situation. Give this gal a break. 18 years. Ought this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And he said these things, and all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Key text, Isaiah chapter 58. You really need to look at this. Isaiah chapter 58 is talking about the fast. And the essence of that chapter is people are saying to God, God, we did this fast thing. We did without eating. We really suffered. And you know what? We haven't gotten anything out of it. You haven't listened. God says to them, well, what do you think the fast is about? You think somehow the fast is for your personal 
benefit. I could talk, by the way, about Ramadan. You know that for, they eat, what, 40% more food during Ramadan than any other time? Yeah, you, you miss meals from here to here, but boy, do you pig out after that. And here we are thinking that somehow going through the ritual of fasting is supposed to produce something from God, and God says, no, you need to understand Fasting, the fasting that I'm talking about is the kind that loosens the bonds. Read the text. Loosens the ties, frees people, and feeds those who are hungry. In other words, the fast is a time for you to sacrifice to bless others. When Jesus comes to the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, we start about verse 16. He, he comes to the synagogue and he, he reads Isaiah 61. And he basically says, I have come to loose the prisoners, to loose those who are bound. Here's this lady. She's been bound for 18 years. Oh, and by the way, when you go back to that text in Isaiah 58, all of it's talking about the fast except the last two verses. And in the last two verses, it switches to the Sabbath. And it says, the Sabbath is that time when you should set aside your personal pleasures for the pursuit of something that's more important than that, for the pursuit of God. And so the Sabbath is, a, is really a fast. It's a fast from things that we do routinely and it allows us to focus our attention on what matters most. My point is, if the Sabbath is a fast, and if the Sabbath is, is about loosing those who are bound, then Jesus is the best Sabbath keeper of all. He is doing exactly what the Scripture said should be done on the Sabbath. And it's these characters who are saying, no, no, we've got to keep the rules. They didn't triangulate and say, yes, here's a rule, but here are other factors. And yet they made exceptions for themselves. Oh, yeah, I can undo my donkey, and I can take it over and get it watered because that's important. But this woman, she needs to wait in line after 18 years. This is a beautiful example of sin. And I want to say this, sin looks its finest in a religious garb. Do you notice that? In my opinion, this is one of the worst sins that you could commit. A woman for 18 years has been bound and you want to send her away. It looks so pious, Satan is a great deceiver, and he loves to look religious. And one of the greatest dangers and one of the greatest sins we all face is hypocrisy. And it's trying to stay within the boundaries of acceptance so that we look spiritual and we look good when in reality we're rotten. Jesus talks about the outside of the cup and the inside of the cup. Talks about man's appearances versus the heart. This is what sin looks like. This woman for 18 years, she puts, in a, in a sense, she puts sin in the flesh and lets us see it for what it is. Well, that's Jesus on sin. 
Now let's see what Jesus has to correct about salvation. We got to listen carefully about this one, I think. Verse 18, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Now notice that, that verse that immediately precedes it. It says, and as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. See, these people had the expectation that when the kingdom came, it was going to come through these glorious and dramatic and spectacular events. You know, smoke and all the stuff just got to look really good. Now, look at what Jesus says to counter that. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. I don't really get a kick out of challenging translations, but this is a bad one. And most of them are. The word sowed is used many times, and sower the sower went forth and whatever. This is the word through, cast. It's like somebody driving down the street throwing their McDonald's bag out. It's not, it's not purposeful. I mean, think about it. You meet this guy and you say, hey, dude, what are you doing? Oh, I'm out of my garden sowing trees. Sowing trees? Trees that are so big, the birds nest in them. Yeah, so when I go out and spread the seed, like it says in Mark chapter 4, all the birds will come down and eat it. No, I think what it's saying is this. A man's walking along, he has some mustard seed. You don't sow mustard seed. You don't have a garden of mustard trees that are huge. Where's, you won't have a garden. I think what it's saying is the guy's walking along, tosses a, a mustard seed aside, doesn't even think about it. All of a sudden, whoosh, up it comes. A tree. And the birds are in it. The point is, it wasn't purposeful, and it wasn't spectacular. It just happened in a non-spectacular way. Okay, stick with me, and let's see what happens in the next one. It says that there is a woman... Uh, where is it? What, in verse 20. And again, he says, To what shall I liken or compare the kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. <laughs> Look, my wife makes cinnamon rolls, and they're good. But, but when she puts yeast in the dough, things happen, Right? And, and so that bowl of, of dough, when you put the yeast in there, you forget to pay attention. All of a sudden, boop, it pops the lid off the Tupperware, and this thing is flowing over, right? Can you imagine the foolishness of a woman saying, yeah, I got this big batch of leaven, and I'm just going to hide it here in this grain. What do you think is going to happen? Hiding yeast in, 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 in flour? Come on. It's going to just grow like crazy. But she didn't mean to make rolls. She meant to hide it. So her intent in, in putting it in the, in, the, in the flour 
is not to create something to bake. It was to hide it. And again, what you see, I think, is the kingdom of God does not happen by grand and glorious planting events. And it doesn't even happen by the conscious purpose of somebody saying, I'm going to put leaven in this grain so that it'll, it'll all of a sudden poof up. I think what he's saying is the kingdom of God is going to come about in non-spectacular ways in ways that men did not expect, and you might even say, in spite of men. Is that not really what happens at the cross? I mean, look, when Jesus says to the disciples after the great confession, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to arrest me and, 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 and mistreat me and crucify me, what does Peter say? Good idea, Jesus, let's get on with that. I think he whacks Jesus on the shoulder and says, enough of that stuff. We're not going down that trail. The Look at Jesus' beginnings were in a cattle trough. And he's going to go and he's going to be arrested and, 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 and convicted and crucified as a criminal. That's not the grand, glorious expectation people had for him. Why do you think people were demanding a sign all along? What they're saying is, that isn't quite dramatic enough. That isn't quite exciting enough. Let's rev this thing up. The kingdom of God isn't like that. It happens in less spectacular, less expected, you might even say, humble beginnings. Now, look at this. In verse 22, it says, He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you and say, I don't know where you come from. Isn't that a strange thing? I don't know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast, are cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first. Some who are first will be last. I don't... I think that it's probably evident at this stage in time that people realized that this was not going to be some popular groundswell event. In fact, I think it's Mark's gospel that says when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, the people who were traveling with him were afraid. Now, we know when Jesus goes to be with Lazarus, the disciples say, let's go die with him. In other words, they did not see triumph. They saw opposition. They saw, and that's what Jesus had talked about. 
I'm going to go there. They're going to they're going to arrest me and persecute me and crucify me. It was not a great news kind of message. So the people are beginning to figure out, you know, there's not a huge crowd following Jesus into Jerusalem. Is this is this just about a few? Notice how easy it would be for Jesus to have answered that question with one word. And that word would be, yes. Jesus had said elsewhere, there aren't many. There won't be many. But that wasn't really the problem. See, nowhere in this, in this whole chapter does, does it, do the people who are asking the questions say what their real motivation is. I think that what we see here is elitism. There were a small group of people who felt themselves to be privileged, and they assumed they were on the inside and everybody else was on the outside. Case in point, John chapter 7. This is when the Pharisees had sent out the soldiers to arrest Jesus and bring him in. And the soldiers came back, and they said, he says to the soldiers, where is he? And they said, we've never heard anybody talk like this. This guy's good. And then Nicodemus says, hey, guys, isn't there something called due process? Don't we first bring him in and ask questions and whatever before we charge him? And what do they say? Paraphrase. Are you as stupid as all the crowd? Are you just like the masses who are cursed? What they're saying is these slobs don't know anything. We're the elite. We're the inner circle. What do you listen to them for? There was a group of people who felt they were on the inside, and the assumption, I think, of those who say, they're not saying, oh, how sad, how sad, people are going to be left behind. They're saying, yeah, yeah, the group is small, and I'm in it. You ever noticed the 144,000 in the book of Revelation? Have you ever noticed the religious movement where everybody wants to be one of the 144,000? You want to be one of the few. You want to be one of the elite. There is a way in which elitism affects Christians. And we begin to say to ourselves, you know, I'm seeing things that my neighbor doesn't see. I understand things about the gospel that my neighbor doesn't understand about the gospel. And we start patting ourselves on the back. And sometimes, my friends, we start thinking that we know more about everything than our neighbor does. Elitism. Somehow, I'm on the inside track. Do you remember the word Gnosticism? It's a word that is, that is used frequently with regard to the churches in the New Testament. Gnosticism is that group of people who are in the know. They have this secret knowledge that the, that the poor hoi polloi don't have. They think they're on the inner circle. What Jesus says is, hey, guys, I got news for you. You aren't on the inside. And that's why he says, you need to be concerned about getting in. See, if you're on the inside, you don't have any sense of urgency like, wow, the time is short, the, 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 the door is, is narrow, the way is narrow, I better hurry up and get in. If you're already in, what's the hurry? 
And Jesus says, no, you need to be zealous about getting in the door, not thinking you're already inside. You need to be zealous about that because there's going to come a time when you're going to knock on the door and the door's been closed and the man who owns the house is going to say, I don't know where you're from. Now, here's where the interesting part comes. They say, well, wait a minute. Don't you know we're your neighbors? <laughs> we, you know, we've been there. We followed you along. Wherever you were, we were there too. Physical proximity somehow in their minds gives them some kind of access, some kind of inside track. Well, we've been there. We've heard your preaching. You've been in our towns. We must be on the inside. Jesus says, I don't know where you're from. You're a, you're a foreigner. You're a stranger to me. And you're not getting in. Here's the interesting part. Who is going to be in the kingdom? People who come from the north and the south, the east and the west. <laughs> Foreigners. Gentiles. They're going to sit at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs and the prophets. They're going to be there at the table, and you're not. Because somehow you thought you had an inside track with me. Probably a good place to stop for a minute and think. How many people are going to go to hell who went to church every Sunday. And they're going to say to Jesus, <laughs> well, Jesus, I was there. See my Sunday school buttons? I was there. You may have been there, but being parked outside the garage doesn't make you a Ferrari, folks. Proximity is not what saves. It's faith that saves. Well, let's come to that last section, and I have to say, I love it. Now we have the crooked thinking about Jesus, starting at verse 31. At the very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Is that true? Well, Luke tells us it isn't. When you get to Luke chapter 23, and Jesus has been arrested, and he's going to be brought before Herod, it tells us Herod was glad. He was looking forward to seeing Jesus because he was hoping he would do a sign. But he wanted to see Jesus. He didn't want to kill Jesus. And when Herod has Jesus before him, and Jesus won't answer the questions that are put before him, he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate says later, Herod didn't find him guilty, and neither do I. Herod didn't want to kill Jesus. They did, right? By the way, why don't they want him in Jerusalem? I mean, obviously, they're trying to keep Jesus from getting to Jerusalem. Why don't they want him there? When Judas makes his deal with the religious leaders, 
they say one thing, not during the feast. They did not want Jesus to be publicly tried and crucified because they were afraid the masses would revolt and they'd have a riot on their hands. They wanted to get Jesus out of town and out of the public eye. They were the ones who would love to see Jesus go hide in the woods because that's where they'd love to kill him. So here they are. Once again, what is the sin I think Jesus hates more than anything else? Hypocrisy. The height of hypocrisy is to act like they are protecting Jesus from Herod when the reality is they really want him dead. And they've already resolved that's what they're going to do. Notice where it goes. Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day. Wow, here we go again, three days. Hmm. Until I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. This whole series really starts with Jesus in, in Luke chapter 9. He sets his face to Jerusalem. You know, there are some people who, who want to deal with Jesus as though somehow what happened in Jerusalem was really a huge failure. Jesus was an optimist. He thought he could turn the crowds and whatever, and somehow it all fell apart. And Jesus' great plan to become the king fizzled. That's the way they look at it. I preached a sermon some years ago called Jesus, Lord at thy death. Now, that's a playoff of Jesus, Lord at your birth, but but when you look at the last events of our Lord's life, he orchestrated all of those events so that it took place just exactly the way Scripture said it would. Jesus did not draw back from Jerusalem. He knew Jerusalem was where he would die. Jerusalem was where he said he must die. You know, when we think about the future and our fears, the reality is we don't know exactly what the future holds, do we? Thankfully, most of us would say, glad I don't know. Jesus knew precisely what his future was in Jerusalem. And yet he resolutely goes on. Here, here the Pharisees give him an out. Oh, you're right. Maybe I should stay out of town for a while till things cool down. No, Jesus says, that's where I must die. That's what I've been talking about. That's where I'm going. I am not turning back. So what we read in Luke chapter 9 and what we see here are perfectly in harmony. Jesus is marching to his death because that is the way he saves. Now, the last part of this is beautiful as well. Verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings. 
and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God does judge men who are sinners. And sinners are destined for hell. But there's never a smile on God's face. There is never a smile on God's face. When you read through the Old Testament and the prophets, it's clear. God does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Jonah does. Gotcha. And God is rebuking him. And Jonah says to God, I know that's why I didn't go to Nineveh. I knew what you were like. You're gracious and compassionate. You forgive. God's the one who is tender and merciful and loving. And here is our Lord, bound for Jerusalem, knowing what lies ahead. But he is grief-stricken over the unbelief of his people. But the last part is, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The cross is the way in which that takes place. Jesus is no wimp, as some might say. He's no one overcome by his circumstances, as some might say. Neither is he a vengeful God who delights in the destruction of the wicked, and Jerusalem surely qualifies. Even there, our Lord looks at Jerusalem through tear-filled eyes, resolved to pay the price that will ultimately bring Jerusalem to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, there's a lot here for us to think about, isn't there? Maybe we've had some misconceptions about sin. Maybe we've thought that other people's sin was so great, God will look past ours. Wrong. Maybe we've thought that because we've done, lived a fairly decent life, that counts. Nope. Not if we didn't produce the fruit. <laughs> some of those sins, when you look at the woman bent over for 18 years, some of the sins that we commit may look very pious on the outside. We've kept the rules. But the reality is we've forgotten about compassion. Well, the Lord's salvation isn't because we ingeniously planned it and brought it about. <laughs> As we see for the guy who throws his seed out in the field, the mustard tree comes up. The woman puts her, her yeast in the, in the dough, <laughs> and she sure doesn't hide it there. Now, God's way of salvation is the cross. It's humble. It's unexpected. Men didn't do it or bring it about knowing where they were going. God brought it about because his son is a beautiful savior, destined for Jerusalem, destined to die for the people who will kill him so that they may someday trust in him. We need to trust him too. Father, thank you for <laughs> this text. Thank you for what it tells us about sin, what it tells us about salvation, 
most of all, what it tells us about the beautiful Savior we have who weeps over Jerusalem, the city that is about to execute him, and who presses on knowing fully the danger and the suffering that lies ahead. If there's anyone here who does not know the Lord Jesus personally, may they acknowledge their sin. May they acknowledge you have provided a way of salvation we would have never anticipated or done. May they trust in the Lord Jesus who has accomplished it all. In his name we pray.